Welcome, everyone. We're so glad that you're here today for, uh, uh, with us here at Christ the King. And uh, we know that there are other things that people can do on uh, Sunday morning, but um, golf does not compare to this, right? This is really great. So th- thank you for being here. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a, a scripture that we've printed. I, I printed it in a different translation this morning just uh, uh, to show you that th- this one was kind of good, and so I wanted to uh, have you read it in this version, but I'll explain some of the changes that need to be made uh, as we go along. We've been looking at this prayer, what is called the prayer of Jesus, or some people refer to it as a high priestly prayer. It is that for sure. Others have called it the great prayer. It's in John 17, and it follows immediately what is called the farewell discourse of Jesus. In other words, on Passover night, he shared some things. Uh, there's three chapters in your Bible, uh, starts in uh, the end of 13 and goes through 16, where he just speaks and talks to them about his departure and what they are to expect going forward as they live a life without his bodily uh, presence. Uh, so I urge you to look at those uh, chapters. It takes about 15 minutes to read the whole farewell discourse, including uh, this prayer. But for the next few weeks, in the past few weeks, we're going to concentrate just on the prayer. The prayer is basically divided in three parts. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself, primarily that he will glorify the Father in his death on the cross, but that also the Father's glory will be realized in Him. There's a mutual understanding of glory passing between God, the Father, and Jesus. Now, we think of glory, we think of you know sparkly lights or bright revulgence or something like that, but John's use of glory is that it was a word that described all that God is, all His character, all His nature, the full weight of who God is both as a redeemer, but also as a judge. In other words, he is going to judge the world, but he's also going to redeem the world. And without putting those two things together, you really can't understand uh, the Bible or the New Testament for certain. So the second section is verses 6 through uh, 19, which we're going to concentrate on. We did last week and again today. Uh, This is where he prays primarily for his followers, his immediate followers, uh, the 12 disciples and perhaps some of the other men and women that were with him at that time. However, Jesus connects these original believers to all of us who believe, and he does that in 20 through 26, which we'll look at uh, next week. So everything he's saying to his immediate disciples applies to you and I. It's, it's pretty remarkable. So let's read this uh, uh, this morning. I'll read it to you from this version. And uh, then as we go through, I'll, I'll explain some of the, the... You'll see the reasons I wanted this to be here. So starting in verse 11. Now I am departing from the world, and they are staying in the world. Remember, he's addressing his father. So he's saying, they are staying in this world. But I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name, 
so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one is lost except the one headed for destruction as the scripture foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in the world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth, your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. This is the word of the Lord. The theme of the prayer of Jesus is the glory of God, and we talked about that for the past four weeks. One thing that is remarkable about this prayer, and truly every prayer that Jesus prays in the New Testament, there's probably 17 or 18 of these prayers, they're very conversational in nature. He's just speaking to God, his Father, as any human being would speak to someone in a respectful yet intimate relational way. And that should inform our prayers. That, uh, you know, while I love written prayers and I have, a, I have prayer guides that I use, uh, I try as I'm reading through a prayer guide to, to make it conversational and not simply uh, read the words and, and like they're written on the page exactly. Um, and the petitions in the prayer, 26 verses in this prayer, but he only gives seven petitions. Uh, you could count them differently. It could be six. Uh, the scholars have divided it different ways. I've, I've used seven because that's a holy number, right? And uh, at least it's memorable. So it, we're dividing it into seven. He prayed two in the first five verses. Now he prays three for his disciples. And here they are, listen. 11b, the second part of the verse Holy Father, and this is the only time that word is used, that phrase is used in uh, the New Testament, uh, uh, f- or Father Most Holy. Uh, keep them in your name. Now, the translation I gave you says by your name, but the Greek is actually an or in, and so that's preferable. However, it could go the other way, and so, you know, again, scholars are divided, but it doesn't matter. It's still meaning the same thing primarily that we're being kept a certain way. We're being kept in His name. And then, in verse 15, He makes a second petition. Keep them from the evil one. And there's, uh, again, it could be evil in an abstract sense, but most scholars say, no, it's evil one. It's Satan himself. Keep them, Father. I've protected them up till now, but I'm leaving. Now you must keep them. From the evil one. And then finally in verse 17, sanctify them or make them holy. The word he uses is actually the word for holy. In the truth. In the truth. So let's look at these petitions. And what I have said from the beginning is 
This is not just information. You want to hear what Jesus is praying because it's, it affects your life. You may not think so. You may look at your life and say, no, my life is not that great. And, I would, you know, he's, not, he's sure not protecting me. That's not the, the, the problem is we don't know what he means by protect. We don't know what he means in your name. We don't understand. Sometimes you don't even believe in the devil. Presbyterians definitely don't believe in the devil. But there's a real devil, a personal evil devil. And we can't ignore that fact. At the same time, we can't get caught up to where that's where all our attention is and we see a demon on every doorstep. And finally, what does it mean to be holy? This is, a, this is tough. What does that mean to be holy? So let's go through them real quickly here. Let's look at the first petition in 11b. He says, keep or protect them in your name. The, the New Living Translation says by, but I, I, I'm siding with in. What does that mean to be in your name? As we've looked at every single week, to be in the name or to share in some way God's glory to uh, it, even to the point of His Word. What does that mean? It means that you have a relationship with the or in accordance with God's purposes and his character in other words glory is not something out here that's separate from God it's what he is he is the 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 being of glory he defines glory glory is him same thing John goes to it goes to pains to say my word is me in the person of my Son. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And Jesus was with the Father or facing the Father. Prostontheon. He was looking at God and the reflection back was identical. They weren't the same person, but they shared all the same nature, same essence, same character. Now, we're talking about the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. And you, you say, oh, I don't understand that. Exactly. Who do we think we are? That we can rationally understand God. But you can comprehend the Trinity. You can get your arms part way around it. You may not fully embrace the whole understanding because it's too big for you. But the reality is you can apprehend it and you can say, you know, I don't get everything about the Trinity, but I know that He is three persons sharing one essence and therefore He is one God. And he says, keep them in your name. In other words, the way he's going to keep us is in accordance with his character, his grace, his love, his kindness, his, his justice, the way he is going to be just. In other words, he's not going to just willy-nilly send people to hell and throw them out because they didn't, you know, they weren't this or that. Or, or save people that just willy-nilly. He has his will and his nature that is guiding his choices and his way of, of creating the world and maintaining the world. And we, we've got to focus on him and not all the stuff that will get us off track oftentimes. So, that's the first petition. Keep them, protect them in your name. Why? Look at what he says. So that, or in order that, or because of that, 
So, so they will be one, even as we are one. Now, this whole thing about unity has just driven people crazy. It drives me crazy. Our own denomination, we have all kinds of different people, and we squabble. We're Presbyterians. We love to, to argue and, uh, and figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a, a pin. And I know how many dance on the head of a pin, and I'm not sure that Dawson does. Or Patrick, our, our brother pastor from Las Cruces here today visiting. They may not know, but I know. We love to argue about that stuff. So what does it mean? Jesus is setting a high bar. He's saying that they may be one as we are one. We go, oh, look at the denominations and look at the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox and Protestantism. What a mess. And then you look at all this, you know, the, the surrounding cults and things. You think, oh my gosh, what in the world is going on? How are we going to know that they may be one even as we are one? Well, Jesus has been, has been saying throughout the Gospel of John extraordinary things about this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Nothing was created without Him. So, you know, you're seeing something majestic, something profound about God and His unity. And He is praying that for us. And what He's not praying is that we all belong to the same denomination. He's not saying that. But there are things that all true believers understand, embrace, and hold on to, to, to the cost, perhaps, of their life. And that thing that unifies us is what I told you the first week. It's who Jesus is and what He came to do. We could, we could go out in the street and we could put up a sign, pull in here, we'll give you $100 if you'll tell us what you think about God. And you'd have what? You'd have 100 cars. Boy, you'd have more than that. And everybody will have an opinion. They'll all say, I think God is this, I think God is this, I think God is this. Everybody, in fact, 95%, more than 95% of the world believe there's a God or something. He, she, it, them, whatever it is. And so we can have people, all these people driving up and getting $100 bills and all agreeing that there's a God and telling you what they think He is. But mention Jesus Christ and immediately you will have a division. Do you believe, what do you believe about Jesus? And Jesus asked that in Matthew 16, remember a few weeks ago? Who do men say that I am? And the Apostles said, well, hey, some think you're Jeremiah the prophet. Some think that you're uh, John the Baptist come from the dead, uh, back from the dead. Some be- believe this and that. Jesus says, no, no, what do you believe? What do you think? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Peter, you're the rock. And on you I will build my church. Unbelievable. The identity of Jesus is the dividing line and what he came to do. Did he come to give us a good example, show us how to sacrifice and love? Yes, all that. But you'll see in this prayer that he defines what he came to do in such a stark, crushing, it should crush our egos. 
crush our self, uh, our, our self-identification, thinking that we can somehow bring to God works and merit and things that will that actually will impress Him. And He'll go, oh my goodness, wow, Chuck is really doing good. He's hitting it on all eight cylinders. For those of you that drive a V6, I'm sorry for you. No, you think about it. What do we have to offer God? Ask yourself honestly. Go below the surface. What do I have? And even our good works are usually, there's some, sometimes it's overt, but sometimes it's subtle. Even our good works, we really kind of think they're going to be okay. And John Gerstner, this wonderful theologian, said, Beware of your damnable good deeds because they're not enough. So, that we may be one even, that they may be one even as we are one. The thing that holds Christianity together, and this is a very broad thing, and that is, you can find people from Roman Catholic background, you can find people from Protestant background, hopefully, and you can find people from Eastern Orthodox who believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God and He came to redeem sinners. He came to save us, not give us an example, but provide a way for us to reach God the Father, to to be made holy because we cannot contribute to it. We can't help ourselves. Even our good deeds are going to be colored with pride and sometimes arrogance or false humility. It doesn't matter what it is. And so Jesus is saying, and the New Testament is saying, and even the Old Testament folks, abandon that. Throw it out. And run to Him. Kneel at His feet. Say, I bring nothing to this. Now those people are unified. And you find them everywhere. And that's one of the reasons why we encourage you to come to church each week so that we can remind you that it's not about you. Never been about you, never will be about you. It is about Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of God, who came and gave Himself to us. And He did it in such a way so that we could trust Him and He would give us what? A new identity a new birth, a a born-again birth. Not a second chance, but a new nature. A new way of combating sin and darkness and all the other stuff. Who Jesus is. What His mission is. And He says in this Gospel, I came, my mission is is several. One of them was to make the Father known so that you could know the Father You know, if you think God is a ball of light, that's fine, but He's not. So what is He? Well, the church has never been able to say exactly what He is, but we have been able to say what He's not. Not like us. He's a spirit. And so how do you relate to Him? Well, you've got to relate to Him in some way that you or religions, religions around the world have created ways to approach God. And so God, the true God, does, does something extraordinary. He says, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make you come to me. 
I'm not going to make you try to climb this unclimbable mountain. I'm going to come to you. I'll show you exactly what I am. And he gives us his son, who is the exact representation of his person, the icon, the, the, the perfect picture of his son. Fully and completely. Now there's a harsh reality in this, and, and it's in verse 12, and you can look at it. He said, I protected them, I guarded them. None is lost except the one headed for destruction or the son of perdition as the scriptures predicted. There is this harsh reality, folks. That there are believers or people that claim to believe who don't believe. And Judas is the paradigmatic believer who really doesn't believe. And that should cause a shiver to run up your spine, and it's designed to do that because we are never to presume on God's grace. In some weird way, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is to presume on God's, ah, oh, He owes me salvation, or how can He possibly not see that I'm really sincere, I'm really trying, I'm doing the best I can. But the heart of a repentant and broken person will be someone who comes to God and said, I have, I have nothing to commend me to you. I, I have to stand back here. I, I can't come close. But you're inviting me, so I'm going to be bold. I'm going to come close. And as you do, you fall at his feet. You kiss those nail-scarred feet. You kiss the hem of that garment because he is all and in all for you and for me. Judas represented the person, the Antichrist, if you will, and we'll get into all the details about that, but the paradigmatic believer who doesn't believe. And believing, having faith in God is going to be putting your all in. In other words, there's nothing he cannot ask from you. Nothing. And we don't like that. I, I don't like that. I, there, I want some things that I can reserve that are mine and mine alone. He doesn't give us that luxury. Christian, and I tell you folks, if you can't take that, you really need to reconsider Christianity. You shouldn't, take, you shouldn't come to Christianity because you're coming to a king who's going to say to you, my life for yours. And we like that. Hooray, my life for yours. And now he's going to say, now, we got that settled? your life for me. Will you trust me? All the way. Anything, everything. Our money, our sexuality, our identity, our politics, our spouses, our children, When you come, bring your child here and we baptize them. We ask you in the vows, will you entrust the life of your child to God Almighty? And if you say yes, then you're all in. Well, what if my child dies? I don't understand, Lord. I don't like it. I I hate it and I'm pretty mad at you right now but you are King and Lord and God, and therefore, like Job, I bow in the dust. 
I don't understand. But I'm going to trust you. Or your marriage falls apart, you lose a job, or you get a bad health diet. Name it. Are you all in? And Jesus is saying nothing more than allegiance is complete. Radical faith, radical obedience, and radical repentance. We don't come to God with our checkbook and say, you do something for me and I'll do something for you. Cannot do that. So in the middle of these wonderful promises of being one even as they are one, there's this harsh reality that we have got to consider. The next thing he promises, he says, so that, this is verse 13, look at it, he says, so they may be filled with my joy. It's an emphatic. So that we may be filled. We're not doing anything to get filled. It's passive. We may be filled. He's going to do something. And joy is one of those things that, it's another one of those ideas that we want to push onto joy, our definitions of what we think joy is. And so we will pretend or act joyful when our heart is shredded into a million pieces. And Jesus is not saying to do that. He's not saying act joyful. No more than James said, be joyful. He didn't say be joyful in James chapter 1 when he's talking about the trials of this life. He never said be joyful. He said consider it joy. In other words, when you're having trouble and your life is in a shambles and these men were getting ready to go into a world that would become so hostile, every one of them would be tortured and killed before it was all over, plus hundreds, perhaps thousands more. They would die martyrs for their faith. They would die joyfully. How do you do that? I mean, if we don't get a tax return, we complain. Christians are famous for the smallest thing throwing us off track. And James said, consider it all joy. He's not saying be joyful. He's saying take the the trials. Take the hurt. Take the pain. Take the doubt and the fear. Take it all. And go over here and put it in a column next to who you believe and who you trust and what He has said about you. Then your joy is not wrapped up in circumstances. They're wrapped up in something else. They're wrapped up in eternity. With the God who is is telling you, He's looking at you straight in the face. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Do not be afraid. And yet, I don't know, folks. We have gotten to the point where Christians, I'm sure there was other generations, but I only know my own. And I see a lot of hand-wringing going on, and I think I've told you week after week after week, there's a point at which we ought to say, no more hand-wringing, we are going to stand firm, and we're going to be joyful in what God has called us into. And He hasn't called us to be powerful, He's called us to be weak. And we don't like that, we want power. And folks, you're not going to get it. I'm here to give you the good news. Not coming. You say, well, I don't like that. Then go get another religion. Can I have a Presbyterian amen for that? Yeah, kind of weak. I know, I get it. There's bad news. There's Judas. But do you want someone in your life, do you want a God in your life that will never leave you? 
When your money's gone, your health's gone, you're laying in a hospital bed, and you got dripping all the stuff and chemo and all that, and you're not going to make it. And there's no amount of money that's going to get you out of there. Then what? Then you need someone who's already been over that line, crossed that threshold, gone into that darkness, come back from there, showed you his hands and his feet, and says, do not fear. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be there to the bitter end. No one will be able to cross that river with you but him. Because he knows the way there. He'd been there. And if you believe and you trust him, that fear can be ameliorated to some. I'm not going to say it's all going to go away. My God, is it, it's terrifying. We are so frail. We thought we had COVID beat. Now it's coming back. And it may go as fast as it comes. Nobody knows. It's exactly what I'm saying. Who are you going to trust? So we don't, depend, we don't pretend that we're joyful. We don't even have to be joyful. But we can be, there can be a current of joy running on. He says, this is my joy. Do you think Jesus was joyful on the cross? He was in agony on the cross. But underneath that was a power and a strength that I don't know, folks, if we ever really tap into it. But I want to at least share it with you and hopefully you'll try for it. You'll go for it. You'll start to dig for it. It's a treasure, a pearl of great price worth doing. Faith in Jesus, trusting Him. Joy transcends our circumstances. How? Because they're anchored in Jesus Christ and His words. These are eternal. And you can hope even when trouble comes. Quickly look at the second petition uh, in 15. Keep them safe or protect them from the evil one. And he says, I've given them your word, Father. The world hates them because they don't belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. Uh, Keep them from the evil one. This is verse 17, because they don't belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. And then I, I put verse 18 up here. He says, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. So there's this powerful... Uh, in fact, he repeats it so many times, you can't miss it. He's saying, look, I'm not taking you out of the world. You're going to stay here. But you're not of this world. But in this world, you're going to have trouble because of the evil one. And the world, the world system is going to uh, hate you. So uh, Christ- we, ca- we have these uh, little things that we do in Christianity. If anyone's here is new to Christianity, we love bumper stickers. Bumper sticker theology. That's America's theolo- uh, systematic theology. And we love to put on our bumper stickers things like this. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. And everybody goes, what? Yeah. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. But I think in light of this verse, here's an idea. This is just my own idea for a bumper sticker. And, and we'll put Christ the King on the bumper sticker so they know where to go to find 
this cool saying. I'm not of the world, but I'm sent into it. Here I am. Our mission is not, not, not to disassociate ourselves from the world. We are here as agents to help redeem this world, to bring it from darkness into light, to bring it from death to light, to preach the gospel to people and tell them there is hope. And the hope is not in political parties. It's not in in, uh, military might. It's not in in this or that or the other thing. It's not in education, although education is great. I mean, I always... Uh, to go to seminary, you've got to spend great deals of money and you go and you get very smart, smarter than you think you are. And, and you, you don't know, you, you know, you don't, there's everything, you know everything now. Education won't do it. What will do it? What will do it is us. We will transform this world. Our mission is not to disassociate from the world, but to go into the world. We've been crucified to the world. The New Testament teaches us that. But we've also been raised to new life in this world. To proclaim the good news, to live as light, to proclaim freedom to others. If you want to know how you're going to deal with your sin, I only have one word for you. Jesus plus nothing. That's three words. But You want to deal with your sin? Or do you want to show up in the judgment before Almighty God and trot out all your good works and count them all up, the little pile of marbles and jacks and, and sticks and maybe a little bird's nest or something that you found when you were a kid. Take all those things and put them in front of God and say, look at this, isn't this great? I don't want to do that. Look, I've already blown it, folks. I, I am not going to go before God and trot out any of my good works. I'm going to go before him and fall down at his feet and say, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinner. And by the way, I brought somebody with me. And let Jesus advocate for me. Let him stand in my place. Let him say what he did for me, not what I did for him. The church, I gave you this quote by Archbishop Templeton, the church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Bonhoeffer, the church is the church only when it exists for others. We are sent into the world. And I looked at our mottos. You know, we have these really cool mottos on our website. I don't know if any of you go there, but we have one that's called, that, that our motto is that we are making visible the invisible kingdom of God. We have another motto, in El Paso, for El Paso. That we're here, the whole purpose of your being here and not in heaven with Jesus, for however long you are, is so that you can give your life away for other people, so you can serve them. Not, not just twist their arm, make them Christians, but actually serve them, wherever they are, whoever they are. Jesus said they will know you by your love for each other, for one another. 
And yet, look at how we squabble. God help us. I tell you, I don't know sometimes. Anyway, third petition. Make them holy by your truth or sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, he's talking about the scriptures, of course. The, the word is the scriptures and the scriptures contain God's word. But you can't ignore the fact that throughout John, John's focus was Jesus as the incarnation or the embodiment the full representation of all that the Word, whatever the Word contained, all had in its windshield, all its focus is on the person and work of our Savior, Jesus. Make them holy by your truth. That's not just the, the Bible. It includes the Bible, but it's also your relationship with this man, this Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Because how would you know the Father? How could you, all you could have is an abstraction of God. You could never touch Him. You could never feel His embrace. You could never know that at that last moment of life or when you're pleading for Him for your children or calling out to Him for help in some unresolvable condition that He's right there, that He is there. He's saying, I'm holding you. I know that you're getting weak. You're ready to let go. Don't, Don't worry. Let go if you have to. I got you. You know, the bumper sticker theology, you get to the end of your rope, what are you supposed to do? I bet you all know that more than you know some scriptures. What does it say? Tie a knot and hang on. Well, that is great bumper sticker theology. We love that. Because we're helping God with our knot. Better hang yourself with that knot. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I'm going to hang on with this. No. God says, "You you don't tie a knot at the end and hang on. He says, I'm going to bind you with cords of love. In other words, I'm going to go all around you with ropes. I'm going to tie you up so tight you cannot get away. I will not let you go. I will make you holy. We don't make ourselves holy. Holiness is not primarily about behavior. Holiness is about identity. It's about consecration. It's about being set apart for something. And if you truly embrace that, you understand, I'm being set apart to be holy because God is holy. I'm I'm to be separate from sin and darkness and all these other things because He is, that will radically change your behavior. Nothing else is going to change your behavior. It's it's radically identifying yourself with the living God. In In Protestant circles, and particularly in Reformed theology, when we see the word sanctified, we think of another word, and that word is progressive. Progressive sanctification. Isn't that right, Dawson? That's what we think. And that's true. Sanctification is progressive. It's something, holiness is something that you pursue, that you work into a little bit more each time. But the New Testament also speaks of something, uh, Dr. John Murray, uh, professor at, I think it was uh, 
Where was John Murray? Was he at Westminster? Or was he at Westminster? Was he at Princeton first? No, he wasn't one of those guys. I'm asking, I'm asking uh, uh, Patrick because he knows better than me. Anyway, John Murray was a great theologian, one of our guys. John Murray said that the preponderance of the New Testament uh, verses about sanctification are not progressive. They're definitive. Not only do you need to progress in your sanctification or your holiness, you need to be working towards that, but you have also, in God's mind, you have also been made holy because he separated you when he chose you and brought you into his, into his world. He definitively separated you. He sanctified you. He made you holy. And he says to the world, to the universe, to the cosmos, this one is mine. He is faithful when we are not. He is there when we run the other way. He follows it. He doesn't hold his nose and say, good luck, you go get in your mess over there. No, no. He comes with us. He stays. He is faithful. But that holiness, that separation will change your behavior. It will alter you in ways you never imagined. It will make you more humble. It'll make you more loving. It'll make you softer. It, as we say in the journey, Vijay tells the guys in the journey all the time, it'll make you more spacious. In other words, there's room around you. You're not prickly. You're not like a porcupine or a cactus where nobody can get near you because you're holier than thou. No, holiness will open you up. It'll make you look around at people that are really busted and broken and you'll be able to say, my God, that's a mirror of me, and then you go and you, you, can, you can actually get involved with their life instead of going, I don't know, we don't want those people in there. I want those people here. So if you're praying against them, your pastor's praying against you. <laughs> we want broken people. Why? Why do we want broken people in our church? There's one good answer. So they can find Jesus and be made whole. What's another one? Come on, y'all. Let's go crazy this morning. People at home need to see a little action here. Yeah, you're sitting next to somebody that's broken. What are you doing here? That's what I want to know. What are you doing here? Oh, because I'm a good person. Well, then you shouldn't be here. If you're a good person, we need to nail you to a cross. How do you like that? <laughs> Come on. So how do you do it? Do you just try harder? Let's finish with this. You can try hard to be holy. You can do all kinds. You can strip all things away from your life. Probably not going to work. How do you know? Jesus just, he does something so, so radical, so disturbing. We read over it. We think, oh, isn't that sweet? No, it's not sweet. It is shocking. It should disturb us, should rock our world. The earthquake should be going off inside. Look at verse 19. I give myself a holy sacrifice so that they may be made holy. That's another passage. He's saying, you're not going to do anything about your holiness. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to become a sacrifice. I'm not going to go up there to show you what it is and be a good example for you so that you know how to love other people by giving your life away. That's not the purpose. 
although it helps us understand that. That isn't the purpose. He went to be a sacrifice. And if you trust him and then live out of that new identity, you're not just trying harder. In fact, it's going to be a joy for you to try, a joy for you to strive for holiness, a joy to examine our lives and say, what, you know, what in my life is not pleasing to God? And it's not what you think. You know, we think of all these little things. Well, I won't, I won't watch Instagram. <laughs> Big deal. No, it's going to be self-examination to the point where, you know, where am I, who do I despise? Who am I judging at this very moment? Where's my pride, my, lead, my Gnosticism? I think I know better than everybody else. I think I know all things. Those will be the things that God targets. Well, you know, I've got this bank account. That can go away in a second. My grandparents lived through the Great Depression and it affected them the rest of their lives. You must trust your Savior and then live out of that new identity, repentance, believing, obeying. So listen, I love to, I love to quote Horatius Bonar. He's one of my heroes and I love the book Everlasting Righteousness. And I don't know how you can be a Christian if you haven't read Everlasting Righteousness. Well, I'm just kidding. Sort of. Listen to this. I don't know. The things that he did, the things that he did not do, were laid to his charge. And he was treated as if he had done all of them. So the things that he did do are put to our account. And we are treated by God as if we had done them all. Now listen, faith does not come to Calvary to do anything. It comes to see the glorious spectacle of all things done and to accept this completion without a misgiving as to its effectiveness or his, its efficacy. It listens to the, it is finished of the sin bearer and it says, Amen. Amen. This is what your Savior prayed for us. Prayed for you, prayed for me. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, uh, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy that endures forever. It's hard to even think about these things without our egos being crushed and at the same time lifted up because you loved us and you gave your son for us. So I pray, Lord, as you would transform our hearts, please. All of us who believe, I pray that you will go in and, and plow it all up again so that we can trust you. And for those who perhaps have never believed or struggling and they're not sure what they believe, show yourself to them, Lord Jesus. Let them see you. I pray it in your name, Father.
Amen.